Almighty God, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would come amongst us again this morning by the power of your Spirit, and I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, and that you would direct our wills. In Jesus' name I pray. So what makes you angry? Tell you what makes me mad is when other people drive badly. You know, the roads are full of bad drivers. Uh, Sometimes I think I must be the only person in Pittsburgh who knows how to drive properly. Um, It's a good thing we begin each Sunday with confession, and then I can confess my pride and judgmentalism, and even on those very rare occasions, my own bad driving. Well, today, in our gospel reading, we encounter Jesus angry. If your picture of Jesus is of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, then you better think again. Here, we see Jesus with a whip in his hand, violently turning over tables and driving people and animals out of the temple precincts. What is going on here? Has Jesus lost his temper? Is he out of control? What's ticked him off so much that he's behaving this way? And what gives Jesus the right to do this? These were the sort of questions that the folks at the time surely were asking. I know I sometimes get frustrated when I have to pay to go into a cathedral or I'm made to walk through a gift shop. I have actually thought about what it would be like to send a few guidebooks flying and knock over a couple of tables. But frankly, I don't really want to get arrested and my friends tell me I wouldn't do well in prison. Well, let's consider our gospel reading today. First, what is the scene? What's actually happening? Well, there are people selling things in the temple precincts. And what's so bad about that, you might ask? And at one level, nothing. Animals for sacrifice and money changing for coins that didn't have Caesar's imprint on them were all part of the ritual worship at that time. John doesn't even say they were ripping people off, although we know from the other gospel writers that that was also going on. No, something else must have aroused that righteous anger in Jesus. The place where this was happening, where all this trading was taking place, was in the court of the Gentiles. That was the space reserved for the Gentiles to worship. Indeed, that was the only place they could worship. But fat chance they had of worshiping God when all they could hear and see and smell was the hustle and bustle of the market. And what was so offensive about this and what I believe led Jesus to behave as he did was this. At stake was the holiness of God. The God they said they believed in And whom they said they worshipped was the creator God, God almighty, all-powerful, and righteously jealous. He was the God who had said, you shall have no other gods before me. But all that, it seems, had been lost or forgotten in the business of buying and selling. I think very often today we can have one of two false images about God. One false image is that he is an angry God, remote and distant, who likes to judge and punish people for their wrongdoings. 
He's given us a list of ten impossible commandments and delights in nailing us when we fail. The other false image of God is that he is like a benevolent Santa Claus. He loves everyone and wants to give us whatever we ask for. And if we don't get what we want, then that's obviously our fault because we haven't been good enough, the whole naughty or nice Santa Claus principle. So God is either loving and indulging or angry and vengeful. Richard Nybor, the professor of theology and ethics who taught for years at Yale, put the indulging image of God more sophisticatedly when he when he said this. The modern religious narrative teaches that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I think part of what lies behind our false notions about God goes back to some basic misunderstandings about the Ten Commandments. And one of those misunderstandings is that we may think of them as being primarily a set of rules and regulations telling us how to be good, which, of course, we're all really bad at. So, in essence, God set us up for failure. Keep these commandments and you'll be fine. Break them and God will punish you and send you to hell. But is that really why God gave us the Ten Commandments? No, absolutely not. Listen again to the very first words that God says when he gave those Ten Commandments. Then God spake all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we need to stop right there. These commandments were given after God had saved and rescued his people after he had chosen them and loved them and called them. These then are not rules to keep so that God will love you, rescue you, and help you. No, they are given as a follow-up to his saving, loving, and rescuing. Yes, they are to be kept and honored and obeyed, but they are given to us out of God's love for us, not as a recipe to earn that love. These commandments set out the boundaries from a loving, generous God who knows that left to our own devices and desires, we will trample on each other in our greed and lust and selfishness. The truth is that it is massively in our own best interests that we do not covet our neighbor's stuff or commit adultery with our neighbor's spouse, or kill, or steal, or lie and cheat. These are not rules to appease an angry God. These are rules to live by that will bring us freedom. And first and foremost, we find in these rules the injunction to worship the one true God. Perhaps one example of how these commandments are given for our benefit is to take a look at just one of them a bit more closely. And that's commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, this commandment hardly seems in the same league as the commandment not to commit murder. So why is it here? I believe it is here both as a reminder to us to remember that God is holy. That's what it says. And as a precious gift to us that one day each week we don't work. 
One day a week we are to rest and play and enjoy God. You know, when I see engaged couples and I'm talking to them about getting ready to be married, uh, one of the things that I say to them is make sure you keep on having dates with your spouse after you get married. And most of them look at me like I'm absolutely crazy, seeing as all they want to do is spend every minute of every day with each other. Being in love does that. But once they are married and busy and working and have kids and, 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 what happens to those date nights? Now, you can uh, look at my admonition to have a date night once a week as a rule from an overbearing priest. Or... You can look at it as a gift from someone who cares about them and a rule that, if kept, may breathe life and health and joy into their marriage. Well, how much more is this the case with God's commandment to keep the Sabbath? You can think of it as a restrictive rule from a killjoy, legalistic, nitpicking God, or you could keep it and discover a wonderfully rich gift of grace and joy and peace from your loving creator. So all of that is to set the background for understanding why Jesus was angry in the temple. It was not because he lost his temper or that he was tired or having a bad day. He wasn't taking his frustration out on some poor, innocent market stallholders. No, his anger was in response to a grievous breach of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No idols, nothing that would displace the true worship of God. It was a response to religious types who thought that they could obey a ton of rules and regulations far more than the Ten Commandments and that they could use these laws as a, as a means of control or as a way to earn their salvation, as a way that they could be good or look like they were being good without God. So what makes you angry, really? I hope it's not just crazy drivers. I hope that what stirs you to anger are things like injustice, poverty, hollow worship, loveless marriages, the murder of innocence. This past week, my heart has been wrought with a lot of anger and sadness. Frankly, I'm feeling pretty angry this morning. And I want to give you three reasons why. First, I'm angry because of the evil actions of Ugandan rebel leader on the run now, Joseph Kony. His atrocities have come to Worldwide attention with this week's video awareness campaign. As of yesterday evening, more than 67 million people had viewed the video on YouTube. Hands up if you've seen it. Okay, probably half of you. Now, we could argue about the, the, the appropriateness or the efficacy of this awareness campaign, and maybe we will. But that shouldn't change the root cause of the anger that may burn inside us on behalf of children that have been plucked from their villages and families and have been brutally mutilated and turned into child soldiers, etc., etc. The second reason that I'm angry this week is because of Thursday's senseless killing a few blocks down the road at Western Psychiatric Hospital. I am angry 
that we live in a society where there are hundreds of millions of guns circulating and where every year tens of thousands of people are murdered. Now, I say that not to get into some political spat with you about guns, but I'm angry because of the suffering of those who were bereaved two days ago, those who were frightened out of their wits who work in that place, those who will forever have images of those that were gunned down, bleeding to death outside their offices. And thirdly, I'm angry this week because of the families that I know and love that have been deeply wounded by lies, adultery, and betrayal. But I'm more than angry. I'm deeply moved and I'm upset. I'm profoundly sad because of all the sin and the selfishness and the suffering that ravages our world, our city, and yes, our congregation And if that's true, which it is, how much more do you suppose God is angry and moved this day? Last year at our parish retreat, Ken Bailey talked to us about how God reprocesses his anger into grace and how we are to do likewise. Does God get angry? Absolutely he does. But what does God do with that anger? Well, he took it to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Our scripture readings today present a picture of a God who is passionate about justice, who brings sinful people into his kingdom by judging sin and evil and taking all the consequences of that judgment onto his very self on the cross. The very idea, some would say, that God himself should be born as a human and live among us and die a criminal's death on the cross is sheer foolishness. Indeed, that's what St. Paul refers to As we heard in today's epistle reading, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Jesus said to those who questioned by what authority he turned over those tables and who were demanding a sign, he said, destroy this temple, referring to his own body rather than the physical temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple worship, with all its sacrifices and trading and myriad rules and regulations, was to be transformed by Jesus. He himself is the new temple. And we as worshippers today come to worship him. And we know that it has always been the case that the sacrifices that God desires are a broken and contrite heart. As we think about our three readings today with the Ten Commandments, Jesus in the temple, and Jesus and Paul talking about the cross, I want to address three groups of people this morning. First, 
To you who are victims of other people's breaches of the Ten Commandments, come to the cross. You who have been sinned against, lay your wounds at the feet of Christ's wounds and receive his comfort. God on the cross mouths to you, I love you. Second, to all you who are perpetrators, those here who have broken one or more of the Ten Commandments, you too come to the cross. Kneel down. Confess your sin. Jesus was nailed to that cruel instrument of torture for what you have done. But look up and look into his eyes. For there you will find not anger and condemnation. You will find love. In his tears, there is deep love for you. You who have failed your children. You who have cheated your employer. You who have betrayed your spouse. You who have been unfaithful. You who have broken any or all of these commandments. God on the cross mouths to you, I love you. And third, to you here today who seek to minister to the broken, the poor, the wounded, those who are deeply hurt, bring your burdens and theirs to the cross. Some of you here this morning, I know, work at Western Psych, and in the days and weeks and months ahead, following what happened on Thursday, you will encounter all kinds of stuff. And it'll be too big for you to carry. So bring those hurts of your colleagues or the patients. Bring those burdens to the cross. You know, I said there were three groups of people. There really aren't. There's only one group. You see, at different stages of our lives, or even in any given week or day, We're all members of these groups. We're all victims of those who break the Ten Commandments. We all find ourselves on the receiving end of sin that bruises and batters and hurts and scars. But we're also breakers of the Ten Commandments. We are the perpetrators of sin. We are the ones who lash out with tongue or inaction, who in our anger sin. We are selfish. And we are all, or at least we all have the potential to be, healers and those who care for others, who can be ministers of God's grace and love. Why did Jesus turn over the tables? I think he wanted to get people's attention. Wake up, people. You've turned worship into a shopping mall. Stop it. Wake up, people. Instead of rending your garments or sacrificing your animals or looking good on Sunday mornings, rend your hearts before me. This week, thinking about these passages of Scripture, responding to the assaults of grievous sin in our community and our congregation has been a wake-up call for me. And as the week has progressed... I've been longing to be here in church with you all so that together we can come as we are, poor and wounded 
sinners in need of a savior. That together we can kneel before our maker and worship him for his love, which is so amazing, so divine. If today you feel tired because the clock's changed, or you don't like one of the hymns or songs, or you wish the preaching was shorter or longer or better or different, get over it. (laughs) You see, (laughs) it's not about you. It's not about what you like. It's about the one who died on the cross for your sins and for mine. It's foolishness to some. I know that. But to those who believe, it is the power of God. Do you believe that? I do too. And it's the power of God that I cling to in my life for myself, for my wife and my children, for you, for our city. Where else can we go? What else can we do? I'm going to close with some words uh, from a song by Matt Redman. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth. No one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours. Every single breath. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. Amen.